We are going to be back in Romans, so you can uh, open your Bible there to Romans chapter 9. I think it's page 945. I think uh, my next sermon, we're going to flip the page to 946, which is always a, it's always a good thing. But we've been in Romans the last year and a half, and uh, working our way through the, this letter. We've, we've taken the theme right here from uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 15. Which Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you all who are in Rome. And you've seen this slide for many, many weeks and and months. I'm eager to preach the gospel. Paul wanted to visit the church in Rome and preach the gospel to them. Um, But his, his eagerness was far more than just Rome. He had his sights beyond Rome. He wanted to go to Spain. Romans 15 verse 24 speaks about how he wanted to go and preach the gospel to, to Spain after he was with the Romans for a while. Because he wanted to preach where Christ had never, ever been named before. And really, this is the big application for us in preaching through Romans, right? Are you eager to preach the gospel? Are you eager to preach the gospel? I know for myself, I'm praying and making great efforts to, to reach out to those who don't know Christ in, in preaching through this, this book. I mean, one way recently, I've been, been playing pool and I've uh, been part of, uh, got on a, a, a pool league team, but I'm kind of a substitute, so it's not a lot, but it is sometimes. I've played four times so far. When they've needed a substitute, they've called me, and I'm very average, okay? I'm not, I'm not nearly the best in the league, but no way, but I'm not the worst. So I'm kind of right there. I'm kind of holding my own. I'm doing fun, having, having a great time. Um, but they all know me as the preacher. So he's the pre- you're the preacher, right? And so... I kind of I, I never told anybody that, but kind of through the the captain of the team that I sub for, he's he's it's an I'm the preacher who's there, and um, um, it, the effects of that I, I've played four times so far, and the effects of that there's a guy on our team who said he was out driving by Alpine the other day, and he he looked and saw our church to to see where it was. He didn't even know. I tried to describe it to him a few weeks ago, and he had no idea where it was. But now at least it's on the the map. He's just thinking church stuff. Uh, but there are plenty of people in the pool leagues who need Jesus. This past week, I, I talked to a young man who's, whose wife died of breast cancer three years ago, maybe, or so. And uh, their daughter never remembered their mom. His dad just died a year ago last Monday. He needs Jesus. Uh, this past week, a guy came up to me knowing I'm a pastor. And he told me it was a battle with skin cancer. And um, he kind of pointed on his belly someplace, but I, I don't know exactly what it is. But he said, I thought it was gone, but it's come back. And uh, I think he's fearful of, of his days that are, are limited. And he said, I've been praying a lot, though, recently. And I've been going to church a lot. And in talking with him, it's obvious his, his prayers and church attendance are, are really a desperate attempt to us to make things right with God uh, before he, he dies. And um, uh, he... He talks about going to talk to his priest and things like just just try and works oriented. He needs Jesus. He needs to know that that uh, it's just faith and trust in him. He needs to see his life changed. He invited me to his home to play pool sometime. So I think perhaps I will so I can open invitation to come and, and preach the gospel. I'm just trusting the Lord to guide me to be salt and light to these needy people. It's a dark place. It's a fun place to be. I love playing pool. But just encourage you all, just that, that God would, would guide you how to reach out to those around you. Just be salt and light. I'm praying for you every day, 10.02 in the morning, Luke chapter 10, verse 2. 
May the Lord of the harvest raise up laborers in the harvest. And my hope and prayer for you is that you would be eager to preach the gospel. And really, for all of us, really, that's what Romans is all about. I mean, if we get through Romans without an eagerness to preach the gospel, we have missed the whole thrust of Romans. It's kind of like we have just enjoyed our feast and haven't sought to share it with those who need it badly. Well, the fundamental reason why Paul wanted to preach the gospel in Rome is, is really because the power of the gospel. It's powerful to bring salvation to those who believe. It's what Paul said in the next verse. Romans 1.15 said, I'm eager to preach the gospel. In Romans 1.16, he, he said this. If you've not memorized this, this is a great verse for you perhaps to memorize. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that salvation that God has given us in Jesus is, is powerful to save. It's powerful to save everyone who believes. That includes Jews and it includes, includes Greeks. The gospel is powerful. You know, it, it's awful to live without power. Uh, this morning in our house, we lost power. And um, I, was, I was up early this morning, kind of working to finish my, my message this morning. And poof, it goes dark. And um, so I talked to Yvonne later. She, she texted me uh, about 7 o'clock in the morning. She said, uh, how long have we been without power? And so I kind of told her back. She said, what, how'd, how'd you do things? And so you can picture me this morning with my band around here. I've got a headlamp and kind of working on my computer and all. Um, but it's awful to live without power. We've come to depend upon it. And with the gospel, we can depend upon the power of the gospel. It's the point of Paul's letter is that it's, it's powerful to save all. The gospel starts with our sin in chapters 1 through 3, that we're sinners under the condemnation of God. But in chapters 3, 4, and 5, we find out salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That leads to a, a desire for sanctification, chapters 6 and 7. And whatever struggles we might have, we know that we're secure in Christ, is what chapter 8 is about. That He will never leave us nor forsake us. And you say, well, that's all, all well and good, but the question comes, well, what about the Jews? Because in Paul's day, as in our day, as well, the, the Jews, for the most part, are, are unbelieving. They will be, or they were, forsaken. And if God abandoned the Jews to unbelief, what, what about us? Can we really trust God to never forsake us or never abandon us? That's the whole topic of Romans 9 through 11 as we talk about security. And Paul is, is answering that. And his answer so far comes in chapter 9, verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though his promises are, are null and void. Any apparent failure is a misunderstanding of the saving promises of God. Because God never purposed to save all. All the Jews, not the physical line, but the spiritual line. Isaac and Ishmael, exhibit number one. Jacob and Esau, exhibit number two. It was Isaac and Jacob who were chosen over Ishmael and Esau. And when people question the fairness of God's way, the answer comes back that the, the potter has every right over the clay to do whatever he wants to do. Romans 9.18, God has mercy on whomever He wills, He hardens whomever He wills. Listen, right, we live in God's universe and God sets the rules. And if ever there was a logical explanation that came last week in verses 22 through 24, I want to read that as we ramp up into our text this morning. Page 945 of your pew Bibles, here we go. 
Now, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us. And he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And our answer ought to be, what if God did that? That's totally within his right to do that. And it makes sense that the universe is not for us. The universe has been created for God to put God on display so that he might be worshipped. See, when God condemns, it reveals his wrath and his power. And when he saves, it reveals the riches of his glory. And as he saves people, ultimately it's to display himself. When he saves, he can show his mercy and his grace. And when he condemns, he can show his justice and his power. And the impact there of those first two words of verse 24 ought to grip all of us. Like, 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 like what if God is, is willing to condemn, but he, he waits and is patient in order to show his grace and mercy to vessels of mercy, even us, even we who are vessels of mercy. And it's Jews and it's the Gentiles that, that goes back to chapter 1 and verse 16 about how the gospel is powerful to save both Jews and Greeks. And in chapter 15, Paul is going to transition to even talk about how salvation goes to the Gentiles. There's four Old Testament quotes there about, about the Gentiles coming in to join in the worship of God. My, my message this morning comes from verse 24, calling the Jews and Gentiles. Because that's what God does in his salvation. He calls Jews and Gentiles. And really, our text breaks down into two points. He's going to call the Gentiles. He's going to deal with the the Jews as well, saving a remnant. So here's my first point. Verse 25 and 26, God calls the Gentiles. Let me just read. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now, Paul takes from Hosea, some from chapter one, some from chapter two, and kind of puts these two quotes together and um, brings across clearly the the thrust of, of Hosea. He's describing how the Lord brings back the lost people of the house of Israel. See, during Hosea's writing, the people of Israel had forsaken the Lord. And uh, Moses likened their behavior to a prostitute, one who was unfaithful to the Lord. She forsook her husband, pursuing idols in search of love. And, and so bad was the relationship in, between Israel and the Lord that, that the Lord disowned them. Hosea 1 verse 9 says, you are not my people and I am not your God. But the amazing thing about God and his mercy is that he called them back Like a forgiving husband to an unfaithful spouse, the Lord showed great grace and brought them back. That's the context of of verse 25. As indeed he says to those in Hosea, as he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved to bring her back. And the very place where I said to them, you're not my people there, they're called sons of the living God. And, and really, I want to just catch the significance here by considering just, just three phrases about what, what Paul quotes here from Isaiah, just, just to help us linger to, to capture the glories of, of the gospel. 
And he called them, first of all, he called them my people. These are words of possession, words of embrace, words of inclusivity. These people who are not my people, he has brought them to be his people. He has embraced them and brought them fully into his possession. You know, one of the recent political debates has been the debate over immigration. And, um, you know, our, our land is just, just there. It's nothing new in our country since the days of Ronald Reagan. We gave amnesty to millions. It's been a discussion. It's just a hard, hard, difficult issue about what to do with people in our land who are foreigners and they come and some are working hard and some are not and they're causing problems. How, how do you, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting any solution to that, but I bring it up because it is the picture of this text. Those who are not my people have come to be my people. Immigrants who weren't part of us fully becoming a part of us. God bringing his immigrants into his kingdom, calling those on the outside, welcoming onto the inside with no reservation, receiving a wholehearted embrace and calling them my people. Peter picked up the same imagery in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And the miraculous thing about 1 Peter 2 is that, that Paul, Peter is primarily talking to Gentiles. And, and he's saying that you all are a chosen race, you Gentiles. But that's Jewish language, applying it to Gentiles. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You once were far off, but now you've been brought near into my covenant to be one of my people. Embraced as my own. That's the fundamental meaning of the gospel, is that we who are outside of God's promises have come in, brought in through the blood of Christ. Paul says it in Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Right, Painting us in this bleak, bleak picture, no legal standing before God, no promise, on our way to destruction, no hope. But then he says... Ephesians 2, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We who are not among God's people have become among God's people. That's just the, the first illustration that Paul gives here from Hosea. The, the illustration from, perhaps you might say, community. There's another illustration, and, and I'm saying it comes from the illustration of marriage. He says, those are my, my people, I'll call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And I, and I think Paul here is, is talking and thinking about this whole, whole marriage that Gomer had with Hosea. Beloved is a term of endearment. It, it, it can be used of community. And, and like when, when Paul writes, he says beloved. Um, but it can be used of marriage as well. Solomon said, I am my beloved's and my Beloved's is mine. And I'm just kind of picking this phrase and calling us back to think about Hosea, this term of affection and love and, and marriage. And, and as, as Dallas read about Hosea, it's a, it's a story of, of a man that God said, go take this woman of whoredom and have children of whoredom. And God gave these instructions specifically to illustrate Israel for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord is what Hosea said, and so Hosea went off and married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. 
this woman of the street, and they had children together. And the Lord gave Hosea the names of their children. Now, we, we name our children, right? But God named Hosea's children because his whole marriage was an illustration of something bigger than Gomer and Hosea. The Lord told Hosea to name the first child Jezreel, which literally means scattering seed. It just means scattered, like, like Israel was, was scattered abroad. The Lord told Hosea to name the, the second child, the daughter, Lo-Ruhamah. Or as the ESV says, no mercy. Can you imagine having a child and naming it no mercy? It's like naming your child Judas. Nobody's named Judas. Nobody's named Lo-Ruhamah nowadays. But it's a picture that Israel would receive no mercy from the hand of the Lord. And the Lord told Hosea to name the third child, lo Ami which means not my people. I guess we even just translate that, not my people. Can you imagine a son named not my people? It's like, not mine, not, not for me. But again, it, the idea here is that Israel's not the, the people of God. These three children illustrate God's relationship with Israel. These are, these are our children of whoredom. They're, they're scattered. They're not loved. They're not my people. But in God's grace brought them back and summarizing Hosea he calls them beloved to her who was not beloved I will call beloved now this might be a translation of uh, which means no compassion no mercy you know that love in the other hand or it could be a general expression like I'm just causing us to think about Hosea and Gomer Israel will be loved Israel will be shown mercy Israel will be cherished, just as Hosea cherishes his unfaithful spouse. So the Lord will cherish his people, take them to be his wife. It's no accident the church is called the bride of Christ. Revelation 19, verse 7. And God takes his unfaithful people, sinful people, and brings them into his own. Think about the bride of Christ. Right? The church wasn't lovely, only to have God Say, oh, hey, church, you're so lovely, I'm going to take you as my own. No, the church was sinners and rebellious. And that's the church that he took, that he sanctified and cleansed by the water with the word, Ephesians 5. And again, really, the good news couldn't be any better that God takes us to be his own as intimate as a husband and a wife take each other as their own. That's beloved. Here in Romans 9, though, there's a third illustration, not just from community, my people, not just from marriage, Beloved, but thirdly, from family. He calls us sons of a living God. That, that comes in verse 26. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, you will be called sons of the living God. God takes us into his family. Brings us in as sons, as his children. And our names are, are not any longer scattered, no mercy, you're not my people. Instead, they're sons claimed as his own. So the, the reality of the gospel that, that we go from, from poverty into the house of God as, as heirs and fellow heirs with Jesus. We saw that in Romans 8. Remember Romans 8, verse 16 and 17. It speaks about the, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, we are children of God. And if children, Paul continues, verse 17, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We go from poverty over sin 
to being fellow heirs, joint heirs with Jesus. From sinners to inheriting the world. And, and the illustration, it's a great illustration to think about. You've probably thought about it before. is the illustration of Annie. Now, Carissa, is, or Stephanie is in Annie uh, this weekend. Can you find Stephanie? Where is she? Right up there. There's Stephanie going. And she's in a play which our family will see tomorrow. The story's famous. You know, the orphan girl without parents, poor, living in a dirty place, run by mean Miss Hannigan, who treats all the orphans badly, her clothes are shabby, her toys are few. And then along comes Oliver Warbucks, who has everything. Multi-billion dollar industry, lives in a mansion, travels the world, has the ear of the President of the United States. And the story goes of this budding, developing relationship between Annie and Oliver Warbucks eventually Warbucks adopts the little orphan Annie and the finality says it all, describing this relationship between them. Together at last, together forever, we're tying a knot that never can sever. Annie says, I'm poor as a mouse. Warbucks says, I'm richer than Midas. But nothing on earth could ever divide us. I don't need anything but you. That is what adoption is. Nothing on earth can ever divide us. Poor and impoverished in our sin, God rich beyond measure, He reconciles us to Himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and we're secure in Him. Nothing on earth could ever divide us. That's a good paraphrase of Romans 8, 38 and 39. Well, those are the words that Paul applies to the Gentiles. Verse 25 and 26, he calls them outside to be on the inside. And it is of interesting to note that Hosea is primarily talking about, about Israel people, his covenant people, who have become like Gentiles because they're out, and he brings them back in. The, the concept is the same, whether they're Jews or, or Gentiles. And what's encouraging or, or good for us to hear is that most of us this morning are, are not Jews. We're Gentiles. Right? And the only way that we come to experience the saving grace of Christ is by God calling us in to be part of His community, part of His marriage, part of His family. And that's why He marveled at the grace in verse 24. Even us. Even us who get to be brought in in this way. Let's turn to my second and last point. God calls the Gentiles. And here it is. I said God preserves the remnant. Or maybe God preserves the Jews is is what verses 27 through 29 are talking about. At this point, we have a transition. He's transitioning from the saving work of the Gentiles to the preserving work of the Jews. And he does so not by focusing on Hosea, but by focusing on Isaiah. Verse 27, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Well, the, the first quotation of verses 27 and 28 come from Isaiah chapter 10. And in this chapter, Isaiah is talking about just the, the Assyrian conquering of Israel in the north. And, and the Assyrians are coming to destroy Israel, the, the northern kingdom. And many will be destroyed, but God promises this, he says. But there will be a remnant. And, and we see here Isaiah's allusion to the sovereignty of God. Yes, Assyria is coming to attack. Yes, they're coming to destroy. 
But God knows that all won't be destroyed. He's ensured this remnant, this few, right? You know what a remnant is, right? If you lay a carpet down, the remnant is the strips that on the end, which is a minority of the whole. And God is going to preserve that remnant. And God can make such a promise because Sennacherib, the king of Israel, is totally under the hand, the control of the hand of the Lord. If you back up in Isaiah 10, before these verses were said, Isaiah 10, verse 5, God says this, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in their hands is my fury. Right? You understand what I'm saying? The, the, the fury that they go is really God's staff. It's God's fury. Their staff is God's fury. Israel's the means through which God would judge rebellious Israel. Assyria was God's rod. Their staff was the means of God's judgment. But God said the judgment won't be total. Oh, the sentence would come, verse 28, and it'd be full and complete. The Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth fully and without delay. But because God was the one behind the Assyrian invasion, God could take the judgment as far as he wanted or as short as he wanted. He could destroy fully, but he didn't. In his mercy, he left a remnant. Verse 27, though the number of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it's only a remnant of those who will be saved. That's exactly what we're talking about at the beginning of the chapter, right? The, the promises isn't to everybody. It's to the spiritual seed. It's not to the whole nation. Though there are to stand of the sea, it's the spiritual line that, that will be saved. If you go back again, Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 20, you see who it is who are the remnant. The remnant are those who trust in the Lord. Isaiah 10 verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will be no more lean on him who struck them. But we'll lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. See, the people of Israel, of, of Paul's day, of Israel's day, Isaiah's day, are the same problem that people in our day have. We, we trust in others and not our, and rather than the Lord. We trust in our riches or in our power or in our influence. Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we, on the other hand, trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand upright See, it's those who trust in the Lord will be saved. That's the remnant. That's who Paul identifies. That's who Isaiah identifies as the remnant. See, Assyria didn't trust in the Lord. If you go back again and read Isaiah 10, you'd see the king of Assyria trusting in himself. Isaiah 10, 12 and 13. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. And the boastful look in his eyes, right? In other words, right, when God is done with his work, which he does through Sennacherib, he will punish him, he says, by this, because this is what Sennacherib said. And listen to the pride, trusting his own self rather than trusting the Lord. Isaiah ten thirteen, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. I did it. I did it. I did it. And yet, who did it? The Lord is the one who did it. As the Lord comments uh, two verses later. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield with him who lifts it? Or a staff should... Live with him who is not wood. Lift him who is not wood. So the, the idea is, right, the, the axe can't boast of the tree it cut down. Because 
It's the one who swings the axe, who cuts the tree down. The axe is merely the means. And so also Assyria is just the means of God's judgment upon Israel. That's why he can make the promise to save the remnant. Because Assyria is the rod in the hand of the Lord to bring it about. And just as easily as God can judge, God can also save. In fact, that's the point of Paul's next quotation in verse 29. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, if God hadn't chosen to save, if God hadn't been merciful to us, we'd have been just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone from heaven destroyed the city, obliterated it. I mean, so much so that it's, it's gone. I haven't found the ruins yet. They're gone. And consider how Isaiah begins his prophecy, because this, this quote comes from Isaiah chapter 1. In, in fact, you can just turn over there. We'll just go to Isaiah and we'll, we'll finish our time in Isaiah chapter 1. We, we see just the, the wickedness of Israel come out. We'll see the, the mercy of God come out. Extending his saving hand even to an illustration that God provided this morning. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, 3, and 4. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master crib, but Israel does not know and my people do not understand. The picture here is that, that God is children and they don't even know who, who God is. Right? They've rebelled against him. Right? Any animal knows who feeds it. But they don't even, Israel doesn't even know or don't understand that God is the one who's fed and cared for them. And God, in desperation, says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. And they are utterly estranged. Here's the idea. They're estranged. They are not my people. They are abandoned. They are forsaken. And you can see their their sin is is what has caused them to be abandoned. They have walked away from the kindness of the Lord. In verse 10 of Isaiah, we, we see God calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, just like in chapter 1, verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, and give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So he's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, this isn't written back in Genesis chapter 19 to Sodom and Gomorrah. This is written to Isaiah that that imagery just might might go up, that that the cities filled with debauchery and sin and awfulness is who Israel was. But what's what's so interesting here is is that they're religious. These are religious people. Look at verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. And God says, I've had enough of your burnt offerings and rams, of the the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. And you might equate that today to what are your multiple church attendance? What are your songs? What's all this that you're doing? You're singing. You're giving to the church. It's nothing to me. I I can't even bear it. He says, verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. And there it is. It's iniquity in the solemn assembly. 
So, so they're coming to worship, yet fully living sinful, wicked, immoral lives. Professing with their mouth the name of God, but living entirely differently. I just had a conversation with somebody this morning. He told me of a friend who says, yes, I believe in Jesus, but has zero fruit in her life. This is the person that, that's being talked about. Yet, I mean, they're, they're coming to the church, they're coming to the worship service, they're coming to sacrifice, they're, they're getting it to the right God, but there is sin. They've not dealt with that. And God says, 14, your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates, they become a burden to me. I'm, I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. You see sinful people seeking to be religious and worship the Lord. God, God won't have any of that. And God could easily have destroyed them. But Paul quotes from verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom. And we would have become like Gomorrah. Like, like we would have been destroyed unless God was merciful. Because they fully knew they deserved it. And truth be told, we all deserve to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah as well. It's only God in His mercy who comes and loves us and brings us into community and brings us into family that would ever change any of that. But the big question is this. Why didn't He destroy Israel? And that's where it all comes back in Romans 9. It's not as though the, the Word of God has failed. This promise is to the spiritual offspring of, of Abraham. It is because God, by His divine design, has left a remnant. And today, there still is... Uh, a remnant of Jews. And we're going to talk later when we get to chapter 11 about Elijah and God promising 7,000 people have not bowed the knee to Baal. And there is this spiritual offspring of Abraham. And, but maybe you're here this morning and you're offering up worship sinfully. The, the message of mercy comes in Isaiah. Wash yourselves. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct the opposite oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And here's our illustration from this morning. If you don't get this, then I don't know how much better to be provided, right? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Their sins are like scarlet. They should be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Simply need to turn from your sin. You need to trust in Jesus. It's the message. It's what God does in terms of His His sovereign hand to ensure that His people will be worshiping Him. And He's building His church. He was building Israel, just not not the way that people thought He was. And the good blessing comes if you repent, right? If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good land. But the consequence of refuse and rebel, you'll be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I think that's good for us, a good word for us, that we just need to confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So our sins are not like the dirty ground outside, but like the whiteness. I mean, just even look on the windows out here, right? Just white, just the reflection of the white. That's the purity that we can have through Jesus. So let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your, your sovereignty and particularly even here your grace which comes through loud and clear. 
that those who weren't part of your people had no claim to any promise whatsoever, you extended your mercy to the Gentiles. And to the Jews, those disobedient people who knew better, God, and you could have easily destroyed in a moment, God, you showed mercy and grace. And, and God, really, we are on, on both sides of that. Most of us are Gentiles. And we've come in through the blood of Christ. And yet, many of us are religious now because we do things for the church and we read and pray. Yes, is only right and true. God, thank you that you preserve your remnant. And uh, Lord, we would pray that you would preserve us. And, and for those who need repentance, God, I, I pray that you'd grasp that, that we would be quick confessors. God, would be those who would confess our sin to you and to others. And show your, your mercy and grace, O oh God, in these things. Help us and strengthen us this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.